I'd like to continue on from where I left off two weeks ago, where the title of my message was, Which Tree Do You Eat From? And uh, I want to go back this morning to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 and just read three brief passages out of there. In Genesis chapter 2 verses 8 through 9, we read, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, he commanded the man, saying, he gave him a clear directive of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's interesting. He doesn't say in the day that you eat of it, I'll kill you. He says in the day that you eat of it, you'll just die. Something took place in that moment. Over to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, has God indeed said? You know, the devil will always get in your ear and have you questioning whether God truly said something. He'll have you questioning whether the Bible really does mean that when it says blatantly and clearly certain things are so. But has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, there's an element of truth in that, but he twists it. He knows God did not say that. But he baits the woman with a, an element of truth, which is what makes deception so deceiving. It always has an element of truth that leaves us believing that this must be true. Because that's true, and that's true, and that's true. But there's always a subtle twist. God said, you can eat of every tree except the one in the middle of the garden. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the one of knowledge of good, good and evil, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree that was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Surprise, surprise. Just as God had said. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves coverings. I, I don't believe for one minute at all that there was anything magical about that tree or its fruit. We didn't just read a scene from Harry Potter and the Magical Garden. I don't believe for one minute there was anything in that fruit or in that tree that had the potential or the ability of opening their eyes to knowing good and evil. It was a tree 
There was nothing supernatural or magical about that tree. What I do believe is this. When a kingdom principle, when a biblical principle, when a directive from heaven is ignored and violated, something of a negative spiritual dynamic or atmosphere is released into our life. And it's released according to the declared word of the Lord. I believe when we violate a directive from heaven, something spiritually negative throws a canopy over us. It envelops us. It, it begins to white ant our spiritual health and our emotional health and our physical health. In other words, what I'm saying is that God could have said, you can eat of any and every tree of the garden, but you cannot walk on the grass of the knowledge of good and evil. He could have said, you can eat of any and every tree of the garden, but you cannot swim in the pond of the knowledge of good and evil. Because it's not in the pond and it's not in the grass and it wasn't in the fruit of the tree that were told. It was in the directive that God gave. And so if God tells you not to do something and you do it, something of a spiritually negative nature is released over your life. Because you can't violate God's directives and God's leadership and, and walk away without any kind of a consequence. It's not in the fruit. It's not in the grass and it's not in the pond. It's in what God has determined and what God has, in fact, declared. The moment the divinely set boundary was crossed, humanity at that moment in time spiritually shifted into a place out of which our Heavenly Father never intended us to live from. You see, His plan has always been that we would live life being constantly Upheld by the word of his power. His intention was that we would always live life moving and having our being under his blessing, under his provision, under his covering, under his protection. That fulfillment and a sense of, of inner satisfaction would characterize our every moment of our every day. That was the intention of God. But we had to operate within the boundaries and the rails. I read an interesting story about a locomotive that, that is designed to run on tracks. It's limited and it's restricted. And in many ways, our life is designed in a similar way where we are designed to run on divinely set tracks. And if we do, we will reach our destination. We will go where we are called to go. We will achieve what we are called to achieve. But if that locomotive at any time decides, I don't want to run on these tracks. I want to go across that paddock over there and through that swamp. We all know that locomotive is not going to get very far. It will derail and do what it determines it will do, but it won't go far. It will soon sink and bog. But whatever it runs within the divine parameters that's designed for it, that locomotive has huge potential. It's the same for us in God. God had always planned for us never to know pain, never to know suffering, never to know grief, never to know loss. He has always determined that we would never, ever at any time feel the need to appease his anger or mitigate his wrath. He's never, ever designed it that way. But the moment the boundary was crossed and we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we lost all of that. 
as we stepped into a place of independence and self-determination. If I know good and evil, the woman said, this will make me wise. I will be like God. She was already like God. She was created in the image and likeness of God. There's the deception of the devil. You'll be like God. She was already like God, far more than the serpent ever was. But she saw that this will make me wise. I will know good and evil. And self began to rise and she began to determine her own future, her own destiny. And like that locomotive, got off the tracks and very quickly became bogged. The moment we cross the boundary, and I say we because they represent humanity. They're the father and mother of the human race. But the moment we cross that boundary, what God had determined and declared came into play. The spiritual negative canopy rested upon us. Our eyes were opened. We lost our innocent and our intimate connection with the source of all life. We became acutely aware of what was right and wrong, what was good and what was evil, because God declared it. It was going to happen. We be, it, because, you know, I talked two weeks ago, because of our inbuilt need to be loved by God, to be accepted by God, that God put there. And I don't have time to go back and go over that message. You need to get it or find it on podcast, whatever it is, so you can listen to it, because this is part two of that kind of message. But because God is a God of love, he needed an object upon which to pour his love. So he created man. And he placed within man an inbuilt desire to be loved and accepted by God. So when that, that violation occurred and, and the separation from the source of all life from our creator happened, man did not lose the inbuilt need to be loved and accepted. But he now had no way of having that need fulfilled and met. And because of that inbuilt need to be loved and accepted by our creator, we embarked as a human race, we embarked upon a futile mission to get him to accept us and love us by doing more good than evil. And we talked about that a fortnight ago. But it's exactly that. It's a futile effort. Genesis chapter 4, I was reading this this morning before I came up into the service. We read that Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. And we read that Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground, and Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. And we read that in the due course of time, Cain brought an offering of the crops that he had grown to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering of the firstborn of his lambs to the Lord. We're not explained, we're not given an explanation rather in that passage as to why God rejected Cain's offering and why he accepted Abel's. I've preached out of this passage over the years. I've heard preachers preach out of this passage, and they explain it that, well, it says pretty clearly, Cain brought an offering of the fruit, but Abel brought the firstborn. And because Abel brought the firstborn, God blessed it, but he just said, oh, you know, it could have been the leftover fruit. It could have been the hail-damaged fruit that nobody wants to buy. And Well, I'll make that an offering. It sounds good. There's potential in that. But I'm, I'm not convinced that's all there is to this passage. As I read it and meditated on it, I thought, no, there's a lot more depth in this. And there's a lot more that we can learn and discover out of this. You see, Cain's offering was the fruit of the ground, a result of his own effort. So he brought 
He grew, he, he cultivated the ground, he fertilized, he watered, he planted, he, he nurtured, he cared for, and eventually he harvested it and he carefully got the fruit and gathered it and said, well, okay, I'm going to sell that, I'm going to store that, I'm going to snap freeze that. I, well, he probably wouldn't have snap frozen back then, but um, and I, I'm going to give this to God as an offering. And you know what? It may have actually been the first fruits. It may have actually been the choice fruits it may have been the best and he just i'm going to give the best to god it may have been but i wonder if god rejected it because it actually represented a fruit of his own effort i have done this for you therefore you should be pleased with me and i wonder whether it's symbolic of what would then begin to take place throughout humanity that we would start trying to do more good and less evil so god would accept us and love us abel intuitively knew that an offering like that wasn't enough. He somehow intuitively knew that blood was the only answer. You see, God killed animals and made skin coverings for Adam and Eve. Where do you think the skins came from? It was the first sacrifice in the Bible to cover our shame, to cover our nakedness. You know, if we don't come through Jesus and the blood that he shed... We will continue to live like Cain, never feeling like we measure up, never feeling like it's good enough, never feeling like we've got what it takes to please God. And you know something? We will go to our grave like that because we don't have what it takes. We, don't, we aren't good enough. We don't have the wherewithal to actually please the heart of God. Blood and the blood of Jesus is the only answer. But as I said two weeks ago, We've, we've developed this mindset because we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or we walked on the grass of the knowledge of good and evil or we swam in the pond, whatever it was. Our eyes were opened as God has declared and because God is ultimately good, we then go through life believing if I do more good than bad, God will be happy. And so we then, we fall by the wayside, we do bad, and we think, I've got to do more good to get back in his good books. And we, we, we run this line throughout our life, and it's absolutely futile, and we never, ever find the satisfaction we're looking for. We never find the intimate connection. We never find the acceptance and the love and the embrace. It only can come through the cross, the blood that was shed. It can only come through the ways of God to get to him. And if we come through Jesus, I discovered 38 years ago that when I came through Jesus, heaven opened above me. Because it works. What God says is actually true and it works. But because many of us don't come through Jesus, we try and do more good than evil we end up really, really frustrated. And what happens is because we can't make that divine connection again, where the life begins to flow again, where acceptance and value and love and security begin to flow again in our life, because we can't achieve it through our own efforts, we end up turning to coping mechanisms. The Bible calls them idols. Idols are anything that replaces God as our source of survival. Idols are anything that replaces God as our source of emotional survival, physical survival, mental survival, spiritual survival. A coping mechanism is, in fact, the world's term for what the Bible calls an idol. An idol is anything other than Jesus that we run to when under pressure or in pain. So when we, if we don't come 
to the Father through the cross. We will never connect. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes. No one comes. All roads definitely lead to God, believe me. But not all roads lead to salvation. Every one of us will stand before God one day, but only those who come through the cross, the means of salvation that God has established, will actually enter into the kingdom of God. So we go through life struggling to try and keep God happy and keep God pleased. And, and it's like we, we're in church and we, we want to trust God and we want to believe in Jesus, but we've still got this thing that if I do bad, God's not happy. If I do God do good, God will be happy. And we, we find after a while it, it frustrates us because that kind of a life does not make you intimate with God. Because believe me, I do more bad than good. That shocked you now, didn't it? You're the minister. You're the pastor. Yeah, and I'm as human as the next man. I thank God for the cross. But if I don't keep my eyes on the cross, and every time I do bad, I start feeling again like, ah, man, God is just not happy with me. He just can't be. Like, you can't do that and have God bless you. You can't live like that or think like that or behave like that or talk like that and have God bless you. So God, today I'm going to try really hard. I'm not going to talk like that. I'm going to, I'm going to follow your Bible to the best of my ability. I'm going to pray an hour extra. I'm going, to, I'm going to do all that because I know that's good and you're good and so you'll bless me. So I end up swinging over here and then I start to feel a bit better about myself. But you know something I've always learned over the years, every time I, I do the ultimate good, it's still not enough to somehow connect me with heaven. There's still this inner... Lack. There's still this inner disappointment. And when so many of us do that and we just don't feel like we're connected with the life source and that the life source flows back into us, we turn to idols. We turn to coping mechanisms. Anything other than running to Jesus, anything that we run to when under pressure or pain, the thing we run to when we're hurting is our idol. God will never allow an idol to satisfy the needs of his kids. He will never allow an idol to fulfill our inner longing for love and acceptance. But yet we constantly chase them. You know, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8 in the Amplified Version says, those who regard and follow worthless idols turn away from their living source of mercy and loving kindness. One translation says, those that follow worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs so if we're not actually connecting with heaven through the cross through everything jesus has done and we're not getting that inner inbuilt need of satisfaction met and need through connection with heaven through the cross the only way we can cope with that lack in our life is to run to things that have made me feel good in the past run to things that have made me feel a sense of peace, a sense of uh, relaxation in the middle of the stress, uh, a sense of safety in the middle of the storm, whatever it is that we run to when under pressure, anything other than Jesus, it's, it's an idol. In Genesis chapter 29 through 31, I was reading this last night, it's the story of Jacob falling in love with Rachel, Uncle Laban's daughter, his, his cousin, and he says to his uncle Laban, he says, I want you to give me Rachel as my wife. And uncle Laban was a ruthless businessman, you know, unscrupulous businessman. 
And he said, I tell you what, you work for me seven years and you can have Rachel. Must have loved her pretty much. So he worked tirelessly for seven years. And the Lord blessed Laban's household because of Jacob, because the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's father, was now upon Jacob and had separated that whole family. The true God, the creator of heaven and earth, was upon him and was breathing on everything he did. So Laban's crops multiplied, his stock multiplied, his farm flourished, his bank account skyrocketed. Everything happened because of Jacob and his relationship with God. After seven years, he thinks he's marrying Rachel. It always fascinated me. I thought, how could you go through a wedding ceremony? Hop into bed that night and not know that she's not the woman you married. Well, it's to do with custom. You see, there was a lot of veiling and a lot of hiding and the women didn't talk much. And so it would have been quite easy when you understand that to actually go a whole night with this woman and do things that married people can do um, and then wake up the next morning and go, Struth, who are you? But that's what happened. Although he didn't know who she was. He said, you're my sister-in-law. But he'd actually married Leah. Goes to Laban quite angry, saying, you, you gave me a word. If I worked for you seven years, you would give me Rachel. And then he said, yeah, but the oldest one, customary, has to be married first. Yeah, you didn't tell me that. You didn't, you didn't lay the cards on the table. You led me to believe it was Rachel. You've deceived me. But what you sow is what you reap. You see, Jacob was one of the biggest deceivers on the planet. So he can't really complain that someone now deceived him. So anyway, he says, I want Rachel. She said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you Rachel, but you work for me another seven years. So he does. And now he has Rachel and Leah. And then he's got women fighting in his household through jealousy. And Leah is resentful towards Rachel. And in her words, you stole my husband from me. So, well, he didn't want you in the first place. Can you imagine the tension in the atmosphere of that house? That's why God says the husband of one wife. One's enough. One's all I can cope with. One's all I need to love. I just... So he works another seven years. He has Rachel. But then a few things happen and he goes another six years. So he works 20 years for Uncle Laban. But then he, he is absolutely blessed, increased, multiplied. Laban's household flourishes. His, his livestock increases. Everything about Jacob is just breathed on. And Leah and Rachel, who were not in intimate relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, their husband, but were getting to know him and were seeing his hand of blessing. Well, I would imagine 20 years of watching, if this is what your God does, I want to follow your God. If this is what your God provides, I want to be following him. I, I want to be his disciple. I want to serve him. And, and you know, you would think that that would be the case. But after 20 years, Jacob says, it's time for me to go back to my own land. I'm going to gather up my kids. They had 12 kids by now, the 12 tribes, of fathers of the tribes of Israel. And uh, they had 13 kids, actually. They had a girl as well. But um, he, he gathered everything up. And he he snuck away because he believed Laban was so manipulative and unscrupulous that that he would have hindered him from going. So they stole away at night and were gone three days before Laban even knew. Laban comes in from some kind of a job he is in the field and he discovers an interesting thing. His household idols are missing. What's the big deal about that? But what we're told is Rachel snuck in and stole the idols and put them in her luggage to take with her. And Laban, of course, chases them down, says, you've got my idols. Jacob said, because he didn't know anything about it. So he's a deceiver. So now all the people in his life are deceiving. Laban searches everyone's tent. 
can't find the idols. But Rachel has them hidden in her saddlebags that she's sitting on. And then uses the womanly monthly thing to say, Father, please forgive me, I can't stand up because I'm at that time of the month. And uh, of course she wasn't and she was deceiving again and hiding the idols in the saddlebags of her camel or whatever it was she's riding. So Laban ends up, uh, they make a treaty, they forgive each other and they move on. But isn't it interesting that she had watched the blessing of God unfold day in and day out for 20 years? had seen what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could do, could provide, realized he was a reality, not some figment of the imagination, but she still felt the need to steal the idols from her father's household. Was it because she had a root of unbelief in her heart where she thought, I'm leaving what I know I'm stepping out now in faith to go to a place I don't know. What if Jacob's God doesn't come through finally with everything? What if, what if this is not what I thought it was? What if God that Jacob worships is not who Jacob says he is? And so there, there was this sense of clinging on to things that had comforted her in the past rather than reaching out and embracing God who wanted her to let go of everything from the past so that she could just completely rest in his arms and be provided totally by his provision you know is is there something in that where Leah and Rachel had just not been able to let go when God doesn't come through how and when we we expect do we turn to other sources you know when we're facing a disappointment I've been praying for this for so long but God you just don't seem to come through maybe I haven't done enough good maybe I've done more bad than good and we our mind starts going down that road and God things have not unfolded in the time frame or in the way or with the abundance that I expected they would do we then find comfort in things that have given us comfort in the past do we then go looking for something that will ease the disappointment or ease the pain or remove the rejection? Or do we, you know, we don't tend to run to Jesus first. We tend to run to the things that have satisfied us in the past. The Bible calls it idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 says, Has any nation ever traded its God for new ones? Even though they are not gods at all. Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing. They shrink back. The angelic hosts of heaven look down in horror upon the world. They're going, don't they know who God is? Don't they know how powerful God is? Don't they understand that he is there for them, that he is for them, that he wants to empower them, that he wants to grace them, that he wants to abundantly uh, bleed his love and his provision all over them, that they are dismayed, the Bible says, the heavenly hosts, the angelic beings that worship before the throne day and night, look down upon us as we find we're struggling to please God. And then when we don't make the connection, we run off to feel better about something else. It says they are they shrink back in horror and dismay for my people have done two evils here's the thing I want you to see they have abandoned me the fountain of living water and they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all we run to things that will not ultimately satisfy and it all goes back to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where we lost our innocence. To that point, they didn't know good and evil. They were both naked, and it didn't bother them. They, 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 there was, but all of a sudden, when they violated the command, their eyes are open, and they go, Ooh, woof, woof. Uh, You know, what was that? It was a spiritual canopy that came upon them. 
And God comes in and says, what have you done? Shame again comes upon them and say, yeah, we, we've done wrong and, and, and we've did bad. Now we've got to do good. God, don't, don't abandon us. He says, no, you violated my command. So it pushes us out. And now we're, we're not connected with the one that can satisfy, the one that can fill our soul, the one that can bring true joy, lasting joy, the one that can bring true peace, lasting peace. We have, we've been separated through the cross. We're reconnected. But many of us are still not looking to the cross. We're still looking to try and do more good than evil. And because it doesn't satisfy, we run off to feel good with something that won't last i hope this is making sense i feel like i'm a little bit all over the shop you know what are some of the idols of today is it money and it's alluring pursuits you know timothy uh, paul says to timothy in 1 timothy 6 10 the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil money's not the root of evil money's a tool but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for some have strayed from the faith they were looking at the cross And they were trusting in the cross and they were coming back to the Father through Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, they were doing that, but all of a sudden they lost sight of the cross and they began to realize, oh, I've done a lot of bad today. I need to do more good. It's like, no, get back to the cross. Get back to the blood. Don't do a cane and just say, oh, look, I'll just give you an offering of my goodness. Come back with an offering of blood, the blood of Jesus. Hey, Father, I stand at the cross and I stand under the blood of your son that was shed for me. Straight away, heaven opens because you come in faith. The only way that Jesus has allowed that to happen. But what happens is we start to struggle with something and we start to lack. We're not getting the job we needed. We're not getting the promotion we needed. We're not getting the extra day's work that we needed. And we start to panic and stress sets in. And rather than keep coming back through the cross for his provision, for his protection, for his security. And so we, we start to think, I've, I've, got to, I've got to get money. I've got to find money. I've got to do what I can do. I, you know, I've got an opportunity to work. And you know, I know I haven't been to church for six months, but I've got to work on Sunday because it's double time, triple time, whatever it might be. And, and, you're, and I'm not saying it's wrong to work on Sunday. What I'm saying is the point is we start to chase the dollar rather than God, I'm going to put you first and your kingdom and your righteousness. And then I know by faith, all of these things will be added to me. But yet money and it's alluring pursuit is, is a big problem for so many of us because our security is more, you know, when the GFC happened, you know, not the BFG, uh, that's the big friendly giant, the GFC, the global financial crisis it was a mind-blowing revelation. The amount of people who were constantly investing in the stock market started jumping out of buildings. Their life depended on that. I don't want my life to depend on that. I want my life to depend on, on the creator of heaven and earth who wants to sustain me by the word of his power like he upholds all things by the word of his power. I want him to be upholding me. I, I don't want my faith to be built on my bank account. I want my hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You know, what's another idol? Relationships and their emotional high. The amount of people that go from one relationship to another looking for love and acceptance. If we just go through the cross, you get the right relationship for a companion in life that you wouldn't be codependent upon that you wouldn't need to survive because ultimately we only need Jesus, but you'd have a great companion in life. But we go from relationship to relationship. We get, we get into in and out of bed with different people because in that moment of love and I'm being held by somebody. 
I'm being needed by somebody. I'm being wanted by somebody. And it becomes an idol. And then the next day you feel really bad about yourself. But after a while, the pain all comes back again. And you start thinking, oh, that moment I was with that guy. Or that moment I was with that girl. I just felt so loved and accepted. I've got to find somebody else. And we go from one relationship to the other. You know, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus said, go and get your husband. He, he, he wasn't playing around. He, he had a word. He knew exactly where she'd been and what she'd done. And he wasn't condemning her. He just said, go and get your husband. It was a loaded question. And he's going, I wonder if she'll open up and tell me the truth. And she said, I don't have a husband. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't going to offer any more. But then Jesus said, no, you've said that correctly. What, do you know me? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I've known you since eternity past. I know your every thought. I know your uprising. I know when you ascend into hell. I know when you ascend into heaven. I know when you do good. I know when you do bad. I see everything. Nothing escapes my eyes. You're actually talking to the creator of heaven and earth. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Nothing came into being but through the word. He was the creator of heaven and earth, sitting at that well with dirty feet, B.O., and tired and exhausted, come to save the world. And he says, no, you said well. You've, you don't have a husband you've actually had five can you imagine how she would have felt at that point i the way he ministered to her i believe what he was saying was and it's okay i understand i understand your pain i understand your lack i understand the inbuilt need to be loved and accepted and you've looked for it in all different places but you've looked in all the wrong places and then he says this if you knew who i was you would have asked me and i would have given you living water which is what jeremiah says they've forsaken me the fountain of living water he said you would have asked me i would have given you living water And she said, you don't have a bucket to draw from. Oh, dirt lady, you are so naive. You're just not getting this, are you? But I think if I was there, I'd have been the same. It's like, she had no idea who he was. He said, well, can you give me this water? Anyway, she goes off, brings the whole town, and there's a revival. But the point is, regardless of how many relationships she had jumped into, fulfillment and satisfaction had eluded her. And it does for us today as well. Food. This is a really, really acceptable idol today. And it's one that I've got to be very careful I don't worship. I'm, I'll be honest. I'm a comfort eater. When I'm stressed, the fridge door is opening and closing and opening and closing. It's Margot, we haven't got enough food in the house. We just Because she's not a foodie. You can tell. Just one look at her. She doesn't eat. But I'm a foodie. And when I'm stressed, out come the bag of chips. When I'm stressed, out come the cheeses and the dips and the crackers and the salamis and the cabanossis and the, you know, sweets. I mean, I I justify it. I'm not a big sweet eater. And I feel good about that. So that's more good, you know. But I come down on the savouries and the dips and the carbs and the you know but yeah let me tell you something though when i'm stressed if that's what i go and do it's an idol instead of running to jesus with my stress instead of casting my cares upon him because he cares for me i i I can have a tendency in my humanity to run off to the fridge or run off to the cupboard food is one of those acceptable idols you know pornography 
Pornography is a huge problem today with the internet. When I, when I was a boy, I was exposed to it, but it was very, very hard to come by. Very hard to get a hold of. You couldn't walk into a newsagent as a 14-year-old and buy certain magazines. They wouldn't sell them to you. We had no internet, but today you can see whatever you want. Some of the worst images you can see on the internet today, and it really is a worry. Pornography is a huge idol today. Let me explain why I believe that. I read a story recently of a young boy who was about 11 or 12 years old who was caught in a domestic violence atmosphere in his home. His dad would drink too much. His dad would then get violent and turn on his mother and would beat his mother. But of course, the boy's only a small frame, 12-year-old boy who, who really didn't have what it took to subdue his father or to stop his father. So fear would grip his heart. And fear is a horrible emotion. Fear is not, not a part of the presence of God. And so when God is separated from us and we're doing this pathway of good and evil and God's not there, fear will always be dominating your emotions. So fear just filled his heart at the age of 12. And he, he got into this habit, whenever his dad would snap, he would go into their bedroom and hide under the bed. And one day he goes in there in the moment of his father's rage, he gets under the bed and here under the bed is a pile of pornographic magazines. So while he's hiding under the bed, he just pulls a few and he starts opening a few. Something triggered in his hormones. And a release of a chemical called testosterone was released into his system and it was a feel-good moment. It numbed the pain of what he was at that point experiencing. And he's on now a high feeling like he's being loved and accepted by these fantastic-looking models on the pages of this magazine. And from that moment on, whenever something like that happened, he would escape to mum and dad's room and they'd find the magazines. And he would just pour over those. And then eventually when mum and dad weren't having a moment, but fear is still in his heart, the uncertainty of the family atmosphere, he would still sneak in and start looking at it. Years later, that young boy became a Christian. And years later, that young boy was called into the ministry. And he became a full-time traveling evangelist with a home-based office. And one day he married a, a woman and uh, one day he's at the office preparing for a, an evangelistic uh, traveling itinerary, whatever it was, and his wife decides to surprise him, packs up a really nice lunch with some really nice treats and goes down to the office, opens the door and spread all over the floor is all these pornographic magazines and he's on the phone to one of those sex hotlines. This is a true story. She was devastated. She was gutted. But what was happening was rather than seeing Jesus and the cross and his provider, he, in the moments of stress, in the moments of struggle, in the moments of not being able to connect or feel loved and accepted, he reverted back to the idols that worked for him in the past. He went back to the things that satisfied him in the past. And, and we can tend to do that. But you know the most frustrating thing about that is the things that work before you were a Christian don't work anywhere near as well after you're a Christian because something's happened in your life and God is involved in the process and he will never allow an idol to satisfy the needs of his kids. I hope this is making sense. Television. That's another one I've got to be careful of. You know, I, I can go home and zone out in front of Netflix. It's a dangerous thing, Netflix, because you can find this really good TV miniseries that's got 350,000 episodes. I just watch one more. And they always leave it as a cliffhanger. 
And while I'm watching that, I'm not thinking about the stresses of what I do. I'm not worried about the decisions I have to make. I'm not concerned about the, the problems that I have to face and the burdens that are just lurking and what might happen tomorrow, let alone what is happening. I worry about what might happen tomorrow, which is a violation of God's word again, because we're not to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough cares of its own. Just let today take its course and cast your cares upon him. But I'm not always as good at it as you might think I am. So I go home and the fridge door's going like this and Netflix is constantly on pause. So it takes me three hours to watch a 40-minute episode because I'm up and down to the fridge. Let me tell you, it's an idol because I know in my own heart I'm doing it to escape. I'm doing it to find a, a place of peace, a place of contentment, a place of relaxation, a place of, God, I just, I just don't want to think about any decisions anymore. I just, I just want to be left alone. I just wish I was the only person on the planet. It's, it's an idol. Alcohol and other drugs. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I was going through hell just a few years ago, I developed an addiction to sleeping tablets because I couldn't sleep. And when you don't sleep, you don't function. And when you're tossing and turning all night and you're getting up at two in the morning and you're still up at five and then everything inside of you says, now I want to go back to bed, but you can't because you've got decisions to make. I think I've got to sleep. And so I found you could get a hold of some sleeping tablets, not illegally, uh, all the doctors in the place and police officers in the place. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't going down the street corner looking for sleeping tablets. I, I got them appropriately, but I developed a dependency on them that I couldn't sleep without them. And it was an idol because I was running to it to find that relief. I was running. It all goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we would just eat from the tree of life, and if you like, that can be Jesus because he is the source of all life. Rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a lot of this stuff starts to fall by the wayside. And, you know, the Bible says he gives his beloved sleep. So I'm thinking, well, I'm not getting much sleep at the moment. I should be going through the cross. Saying, Jesus, I cast my cares upon you and I stand upon your promise that you give me sleep. He will. But because we can get into this mindset of, no, he probably won't tonight because I was really cranky with that person when I had to make that decision and they didn't take it well and they reacted, so I reacted and, and oh, man, some man of God I am, aren't I? I can't even follow the Bible myself. How can I expect others to follow it? And then I start, no, there's no way God will give me sleep tonight. There's no way God's going to bless me tonight. I, I just need to be a better man of God. And if I'm a better man of God and I, I'm more faithful to his word and, and I'm more true to the calling upon my life and I'm, I speak more kindly to people and I, and I don't, you know, you know what I'm trying to say, then God will, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But my mind, rather than go back through the cross saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I am lost without you. And I, am, I have so many flaws, but thank God for the blood. And I just come back to the blood. I've really had a bad day today and everything's gone pear-shaped today. But I'm coming back to the cross and I declare the blood of Jesus because tomorrow I need to make bigger decisions. And Jesus, I want to go to bed in right relationship with you. Give me some sleep. Instead of doing that, though, I'd go to the cupboard and I'd get two more sleeping tablets out. It was an idol. I know I'm being really vulnerable with you here today, but sometimes I think we just got to be real. They're idols. You know, I'm going to close with this. The band can come back. It's been said that there are four different types of people. The first one says, I, not Christ. And of course, they're the God-rejecting humanists. The people that don't want God in their life, the people that don't believe God exists. It's interesting, Stephen Hawking's. I wonder how he feels now. 
he proved there was no God, as far as he was concerned. Brilliant, brilliant scientist. I just wonder how he feels now. But there are those like Stephen Hawking that say, I, not Christ. Life's about me. I self-determine. I go where I want to go. I do life according to what seems right in my own eyes. I, not Christ. The second type of person is I and Christ. These want Jesus to be fire insurance, to keep them out of hell. But as far as they're concerned, they want to still live life the way they want to live, but they just want to know that when the time comes, if there is a God, I want to know that I'm going up, not down. So that's, that's kind of like I and Christ. So life's all about me, but I just need to know that if I'm going to die or if something happens, then I'm going to go up, not down. The third kind of people is Christ and I. These are the most miserable of all. They want Jesus to be Lord, but if he doesn't act according to their plans or wishes, out come the idols. They want Jesus to be Lord, they want Jesus to rule and reign. They want Jesus to be their God. But they want him to be Lord and God according to how they want him to be Lord and God. Which means they are Lord and God and he's their servant. It doesn't work. Because he will never jump to our command. Christ and I, the most miserable of all. When God does not act according to our plans, our wishes or our time frames, out come the idols. Because we feel rejected. We feel God doesn't love us. We fail to gain his acceptance by being a better pastor. Being more godly in my thinking. Rather than coming back to the cross, searching for the grace of God to help me be who he's called me to be, I'm trying to be who he's called me to be. And it doesn't work. So out come the idols. The fourth is Christ, not I. First one is I, not Christ. Second one is I and Christ. The third one is Christ and I. But the fourth one is Christ, not I. These are the ones who have learned the secret of dependence upon him and trust in the life source. They feed on the tree of life, casting their cares, their anxieties, their worries, their fears upon him. And they live with the peace of God, ruling and reigning 24 hours a day seven days a week. Am I there yet? No, but I have my moments where I feel like I'm close. Then I have my moments where I slip back into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's so easy when you, when you really have a bad day and you, you behave in such an ungodly manner, it's so easy to feel like I'm unacceptable to God. I can't even come to the cross. I'm not worthy. I just need to work a bit harder. Stop doing what I'm doing and then I'll come to the cross. That's like, that's like being bitten by a funnel web spider and saying, oh, who am I to go to the hospital? Who am I to, to hold up doctors and nurses? There are other people that are more important than me. I'll wait till the poison's passed out of my system and then I'll go to the hospital. How many of you know the poison's not going to pass out of your system? How many of you know... It's curtains. It's, it's time over. It's the same with our Christian faith. When we stuff up, we need him more than ever. We need him to come into our mess, come into our brokenness. He lifts us out of the mud and the mire. He lifts us out of the pit of destruction. He puts our feet upon a solid foundation. We've got to get our thinking straight. Father, I pray today. 
that every person in this place, including me, would get a fresh revelation that you love us, that you are for us, even in our worst of moments, you're wanting to work with us. You're wanting to lift us. You're wanting to help us. I pray, Lord, that we would all learn to come through the cross, that we would all learn to eat again from the tree of life and stop eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Father, today I pray your hand would rest upon everybody in this room.